All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and here we go now with BC's brand new provincial budget introduced yesterday by Finance Minister Selena Robinson. Spending is way up in BC. The deficit here soaring to over $5 billion this year alone. The long-term debt exploding to more than $100 billion. No apparent plan here to balance the budget. It is a spending palooza here in B.C. right now. The government says, hey, we had no choice. We must spend big on child care, climate change, and especially rebuilding all those bridges and highways damaged in last year's floods. Have a listen here to Finance Minister Selena Robinson. If we're going to get a handle on, on climate change, if we're going to get a handle on managing our po- population growth um, in Lower Mainland and, and elsewhere, then we need to be making these investments. All right, let's talk about the budget now with my guest, Kevin Falcon, leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, your thoughts on this budget. Man, that's a lot of spending, a lot of money going out the door. Your thoughts? Well, it, it is a, it's a typical sort of NDP tax and spend budget. There's new taxes, of course. There's a ton of spending. Um, my concern is that it's very unfocused, and it doesn't deal with the real affordability issues that British Columbians are struggling with. So you think about, you know, rent increases. In Surrey, for example, rents are up more than $3,200 since 2017. Still no promised renter's rebate they promised, you know, five years ago back in 2017. Grocery prices way up. Gas prices, the highest in North America. Housing prices, the highest we've ever seen them in spite of all the new taxes the NDP introduced on housing. Childcare, they've been talking about since since 2017. $10 a day childcare, which I strongly support, by the way. Unfortunately, they're saying, well, now it's $20 a day and we might see it in a couple of years. I, I mean, this is just a failure of delivery, Mike, and that's my biggest concern. Okay, so the government is saying, look, they've had unprecedented natural disasters. They've got all kinds of pressing problems and issues they have to deal with. The money must be spent. The money must go out the door. You're saying that they're spending too much? Is that what I'm hearing? No, no, I'm saying that it's very unfocused, and, and they're not getting uh, the results on the ground. So, for example... They keep making promises like a, a Surrey, they promised a second Surrey hospital, which is really not a hospital, it's an urgent care center. But even that, they've only got $2 million in the budget for that 160-room urgent care center. $2 million of planning money. Well, I can tell you in the, house, in, the, in the hospitality sector or the hospital sector, excuse me, $2 million for planning goes absolutely nowhere. St. Paul's, to give you a comparator, which is building a 548 uh, room hospital in Vancouver has got $30 million for planning. Well, that's more realistic. That's what it's going to take uh, if you're going to do any serious planning. So, I mean, my concern is that even Richmond General Hospital, they promised that that would be, as one as the local NDP MLA from Richmond said, shovels in the ground by 2021. They're now talking about 10 years from now, we might see that hospital in place. And so my concern is they make all the promises, Mike, and all the spending promises, but nothing's happening on the ground. Okay, speaking to BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, let me ask you about those taxes that you mentioned. Let's take a look at some taxes in this budget now. Uh, so there's a what are what taxes are going up here? Well, the one that really really offends me is the one on used car sales. You know, they're going after people that if you get a good deal and buy a used car and get a pretty good price, the NDP saying, "Well, that's not good enough." We're going to use the average selling price of that used car and charge you on that higher amount. 
And this really hurts low-income folks the most because they're the ones that are usually buying used cars. And, and so I think that's a real hit. They're also expanding their is that, is that a brand? Is that a brand-new tax? Absolutely it is. Okay. Absolutely it okay. is. And they're also, they're also expanding online taxation, so they want to make sure if you're buying things off eBay or what have you, you're going to be paying the PST. Uh, they're also uh, putting taxes on home heating systems that uh, are that, that are fueled by natural gas. So they're going to hammer people, especially in the north, uh, that are trying to heat their homes. They're well, going to pay a, more. So. Well, that's a climate change initiative, right? Well, that's what they'll call it. But to me, it's a climate change initiative, which really is a tax grab. That's why the carbon tax has gone up 11% too. And here's the problem. Under the B.C. Liberals, we said that every nickel that was generated for climate change initiatives like an increased carbon tax has to, by law, go back and do lower personal taxes and lower small business taxes yeah. uh, for the residents of B.C. But they stripped that away and said, no, we're taking it all into government. So it went from a tax shift to a tax grab, let, and that is really unfortunate. Let me ask you about the long-term debt, which is set to go up to over $100 billion here for the first time. So have a listen to Selena Robinson, the finance minister here, defending that debt going up, and I'll get your thoughts. Our debt burden remains manageable for a province of our size, with the taxpayer debt-to-GDP ratio remaining below 25%. Okay, do you think the debt is too high? Uh, it, the rate of growth of the debt is growing much too quickly, and it's the trend lines you have to worry about. In this budget, again, as I say, the trend lines are what concern me. Spending's up more than twice what revenues growth is. Um, you've got the debt exploding to $100 billion, the highest in the history of the province. He says 25% debt to GDP. Yes, but we had it down as low as 15 uh, when I was in government. And so the problem is the trend lines are going absolutely in the wrong direction. That will not go unnoticed by the debt rating agencies, I can assure you. Okay, there's a big building plan in this budget here to spend money on new building projects. And a lot of it, I think, is, is badly needed, especially after the natural disasters we saw in the province last year. So, Selena Robinson, the finance minister, was asked yesterday, how much is it going to cost to build, rebuild all these highways and bridges that were damaged in the floods and landslides? Here's what she had to say. There's still numbers coming in uh, in terms of understanding exactly what the costs are going to be. I'll have more to say about that in the next number of weeks as we hear uh, exactly what it's going to cost. Okay, so still no price tag to repair all these highways, but I wonder if the price could potentially be inflated if the government brings in union-only contracting rules on these projects. What are your thoughts? Well, of course it will be. In fact, if you look at the projects, in which they have applied the so-called misnamed community benefits agreements. Um, and I say misnamed because there's no benefits. In fact, there's costs. They go way over budget, and increasingly you see the NDP actually reduce what they call the scope of the projects to try and keep the cost overruns as, as low as they possibly can, which means taxpayers are actually paying more to get a lot less. And we've seen that in virtually every single one of their transportation projects thus far. Uh, you're going to see it continue. They've talked about that BCIT skill center that they're going to build under yeah. the misnamed Community Benefits Agreement. It will end up costing a lot more and will get a lot less. I mean, this is just appalling from a taxpayer so, point of view. So you would allow building to be well, like open shop policies there that non-union companies or, or companies that have unions that aren't, affili- aren't affiliated with the main building trades? To work on, yes, work I would on go, these projects? I would not, I would move, I would absolutely cancel their requirement 
that not only must you be unionized, that I have no problem with that. I, there's a lot of great union contractors out there. But what the NDP do under the Community Benefits Agreement is they say, even if you're a non-union company bidding on a project like that, you have to lay off all your employees. They all have to go through a union hiring hall, and they will yeah. send you out the unionized employees they select. I mean, it is the dumbest approach I've ever seen. It's literally from the early 1970s era. Okay, last question for you. Let me ask you about your favorite project, the Patel, the uh, Massey Tunnel, and the, plas- the pl- plan to replace it with another tunnel, cancelling the bridge project that the previous Liberal government had started. Uh, we've talked about this before. You have t- you have talked about the potentially going back to Plan A and build that bridge instead. Is there any money earmarked in this budget for that Massey Tunnel? Just for the planning work that they're going to have to start from scratch to do to look at a tunnel option, which will never happen, by the way. Uh, they'll never get that thing built. It, it's going to spend years mired in environmental assessment. But the real tragedy for the listeners out there from Delta and Surrey and, and Richmond is that that 10-lane bridge would have been opening this summer. And that 10-lane bridge was designed for rapid transit so we could expand in the future from the Bridgeport Skytrain Station out to South Surrey. It would have had you know, two lanes dedicated for rapid buses. It would have had four lanes in each direction for, for traffic, uh, you know, growth to, to understand that uh, Surrey and Delta are fast-growing communities. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's an appalling decision uh, on a project that, was, that came in at $900 million under the $3.5 billion budget. They're yeah. now asking us to wait 10 more years for an eight-lane tunnel that will give you the same number of commuter lanes that we have today, and it's going to cost $4.5 billion. It's just, it's, I, I've, I've never seen a dumber capital decision in my lifetime. All right, thanks for coming on with your thoughts this morning. I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for having me, Mike. All right, here we go now with continuing B.C. budget coverage. B.C. Finance Minister Selena Robinson introduced a big spending budget yesterday, the deficit soaring to more than $5 billion this year alone, billions more in deficit spending over the next two years. The debt set to hit $100 billion next year. Okay, that's a lot of money going out the door here. Will any of this spending be a help to small business. Well, let's find out. Speak to Annie Dormuth now, Provincial Affairs Director at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and they represent small business across Canada. Hi, Annie. Thanks for coming on again. Always great to be on the show, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for doing it. Okay, so taking a look at this budget, I know that this has been a tough road for small business the last couple of years. Is there anything in this budget here to help small business? Well, I'd have to say there's really little. Really, only thing that stood out to us was good news for the B.C. government that they did not introduce new tax increases. However, that really does ignore the swath of other cost increases that small business owners are dealing with or on the horizon. I know you and I have talked about employer-paid sick days before, rising property taxes, the employer health tax, carbon tax increases, and, of course, what all British Columbians are dealing with as well as just really the rising cost of inflation. So really not a lot here for struggling small businesses in the form of reducing costs at a time when small business recovery remains uncertain. Yeah, and when you talk about inflation, I mean, when people hear the, the word inflation, they think about their own pocketbook, right? They think about, oh my God, look how much it costs to gas up my car. Look, look how much I'm paying for groceries all of a sudden. But when you're running a small business, I mean, inflation is walloping you too, right? 
Well, that's definitely the case. It comes in the form of food, fuel, heating costs, all of that comes down on the backs of onto small businesses. And definitely what we're hearing from small businesses in BC, one of their biggest concerns heading into the new year is really rising prices. Yeah, yeah. And as for sick days, we've talked a lot about that on the show, paid sick days, now the law of the land here in British Columbia. What kind of impact is that having on small business right now? Well, still having a major impact on small businesses, as well as still not a lot of clarity provided by the B.C. government on navigating this very big change in policy impact for business owners. Uh, You and I talked about, you know, how these five-day sick days are actually 10 days in certain cases. We've still yet to get word from the B.C. government on, on fixing that kind of legislative loophole or addressing that issue. Really? So you're still trying to get some clarity from the government on that one? Like, you know, this was this. I don't know if this was intended, what they were going to do. They said five paid sick days. And now it's like, well, actually could be 10 paid sick days a year in some circumstances this year. That's still that, that hasn't been fixed. That is correct, unless we, yeah. unless I miss something or communication from the BC <laughs> government. But no, they keep saying, "Oh, we're working on it. We're aware of the issue," and yet, you know, we're we're a couple months into the new year here, and still yeah. no clear cut of direction for business owners that, on that, that front. That should that should be a no brainer to fix. I mean, they shouldn't they should not have dropped the ball on that one to start with. And uh, I'm surprised to hear that. My guest is Annie Dormuth, Provincial Affairs Director, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. So, you know, there's a lot of money going out the door here. Annie, you talked about small businesses struggling right now. How are businesses doing right now with this pandemic, hopefully coming to an end, we hope soon, but been two years, we're going into year three. What kind of impact has that had on small business in B.C.? Well, definitely a tremendous amount of impact for BC small businesses and really small businesses across the entire country. You know, we do recognize that this government in this province has, you know, kept businesses as open as possible in comparison to other jurisdictions, you know, thinking primarily of uh, Ontario and Quebec that have been in more severe, I think, closures and lockdowns. But still, economic uncertainty remains uh, top of mind for BC small businesses. Still, only 35% of BC small businesses are back to normal sales. They estimate that it could take up to 21 months to fully recover at their current rates. So really, this budget was an opportunity to put small businesses on a path of economic recovery, which really comes down to lowering costs for them. Okay, so only 35% of small businesses back to normal sales. So you're saying that the rest, like 65% of small businesses have seen lower sales uh, impact because of the pandemic and they still hasn't recovered? Is that right? That is that is correct. So wow. 65% of small businesses are not at pre-pandemic revenue sales that they saw, you know, nearly two years ago. So again, this is kind of a call to action for all governments, you know, you name it, municipally, provincially, federally even, um, in in order to ensure, you know, a strong BC, we also need to ensure a a strong economic recovery of our business owners. And that comes down to lowering costs for them in, uh, in, in, you know, in these sort of uh, ways. Okay, so last week we saw an economic plan that was rolled out by this government and they called it Stronger BC. A plan for today, a vision for tomorrow. That is what this plan is called. And that plan included a shout-out, at least, to small business. It said, they said small business is big business in big B.C. Business. 
Which is, I like that actually, because small business really is the backbone of the economy. So yeah, small business really is kind of big business when you think about it that way. But, you know, you know, and did that give you some hope that you expected to see more in this budget as a result when that was in the plan last week? Well, that was definitely what we were hoping to see. You know, I, 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 that quote stood out to us as well. Small business is big business. Yeah. And, you know, if, if the government wants to keep it that way, they got to stop walloping small businesses with these, you know, major policy changes that come with major cost implications. I bring up employer paid sick days coming into January 1st of this year. Well, some small businesses, for example, those in the uh, kind of uh, fitness industry were completely closed. I mean, you know, the B.C. government is really not recognizing, I would have to say, the state of small businesses right now and doing all that they can to stop walloping them with increasing costs. Okay, what would you have liked to have seen in this budget? Well, definitely, you know, addressing the five-day paid sick day issue would have been a great start, of course. Um, They could have done more, for example, uh, scrapping the employer health tax for small businesses or at least increasing the exemption threshold. It's important to recognize that, you know, businesses are paying the employer health tax on top of now an employer-paid sick day cost. Those are two health-related costs. Um, As well as looking for training tax credits to help with on-the-job training. Again, labor shortage is a big issue for small businesses and continue to be. As well as, you know, hoping to see a PST exemption on machinery and equipment or at least to have that extended. Um, all of those things would have been welcome news for the budget, what? and unfortunately, none of that was in it. What? Oh, speaking of that employer's health tax, what is the threshold where that kicks in? Because I thought they said small business would be exempted from that. Uh, 500000 right. So a $500,000 annual payroll. Is that right? That's I, correct, yeah. Right. So do you think that is a reasonable threshold? Like if a if a company that has a $500,000 payroll, is that now, is that like big business now? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think that would be a lot of, that would be, a, I think a lot of small businesses would have a payroll of potentially that size, right? Yeah. And again, increase, just increasing that threshold would, would include more of the small, medium enterprise businesses that, you know, our organization represents and again just could have, could be helpful to small businesses especially when you take into consideration they're they're paying for another health cost in the form of employer paid sick days right and and as for that employer paid sick days and, and this loophole around whether it's five paid sick days a year or potentially 10 paid sick days a year in some cases to me that just seems like an easy fix they, they just make it a calendar year program starting on january 1st through the end of the year and if you were worked some extra days the year before, you you could just prorate it. Could you not? Like- well, again, we, we, we sent a letter along with other uh, business associations to the government kind of even recommending uh, some of these changes. Even I think we provided, uh, you know, a, a, an example of type of uh, legislative amendment that could be included that could help fix all of this. And yet we still have not gotten confirmation from the from the BC government on addressing it or fixing it. They they know they know the issue exists. Yeah. However, there doesn't seem to be any type of uh, communication yet to business owners or business associations that we can provide to our members on fixing that little little bit of a I wouldn't say little bit, but a pretty major yeah. legislative loophole. Yeah. Okay. We continue to follow that one for sure. Thank you very much for coming on today. Appreciate it. Of course, anytime, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about BC's deadly gang war now and its international links, especially the fatal gang hit 
on former BC gangster Jimmy Sandu is known by the nickname Slice Sandu because of the large scar on his face. He was deported out of Canada in 2016. He was shot dead earlier this month in Phuket, Thailand. Police there have released shocking surveillance video showing Sandu driving up to a house, emerging from a red sports car, and then being gunned down by multiple hitmen who riddled his body with bullets. All right, now police, the police investigation into this international gang hit. The investigation now focused on B.C. and Canada. Let's discuss now with Kim Boland, the award-winning crime reporter at the Vancouver Sun, who's been on this story. Kim, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Okay, Kim, first of all, let's talk about the hit on this guy. Who, who was this guy, Jimmy Slice Sandu? Jimmy Sandu grew up in Abbotsford. Uh, he was born in India, but raised by his grandmother here locally. Started getting into trouble as a teenager, had some serious assault convictions uh, in his early 20s. Uh, he was charged in 2014 with killing Matt Campbell of the Red Scorpion Gang, but that charge was stayed about a year later. I heard at the time that there was a witness that was no longer cooperating, uh, so some believe he actually got away with murder. However, his two assault convictions were enough to put him on the radar of the Immigration Refugee Board because he had never obtained citizenship. So in uh, late 2015, there was a hearing and he was ordered deported for serious criminality. Right, so he was deported back to India, I guess, right? Back to India, where it looks yeah. like he immediately got involved in the drug trade. Uh, when he was in B.C., he was aligned with uh, the United Nations gang, and he kind of rose up the ranks a little bit internationally once he left Canada. So he wow. was arrested in June of 2018 uh, in Bombay or Mumbai, uh, and he was allegedly running a large ketamine factory and producing other drugs as well with another B.C. man who was a convicted killer, uh, granted parole, but was not supposed to leave the country. And so there were charges out for him here wow. in Canada, not for Jimmy, but for this other fellow. Uh, Jimmy got released on um, bail there in India, and he left, right? So he's believed to have been going back and forth between Dubai and Southeast Asia, primarily Vietnam, but he went to Thailand and had been staying there uh, for a couple of weeks when he was gunned down. Yeah, do you think he was in hiding? Like he, like I was reading that, you've done some awesome work on this, like he apparently had a place in Dubai and then he was back and forth to Thailand. Like, do you think he was hiding? Do you think he knew he was a marked man? I think he knew he was a marked man. I heard that he had some issues with others in his own gang and that he also had some disputes uh, in Dubai. And of course, there's people here in B.C., uh, that are not happy given his uh, the allegation that he killed this prominent Red Scorpion gangster back in 2014. So yeah. he had a lot of enemies for sure. The key is narrowing down, you know, where the plot originated. But it looks yeah. like it was here in Canada. Okay, so then on February 5th, he shot dead on, in Thailand, and the police there have released this shocking video. It shows him driving up in this MG car, red MG. He gets out, and then it looks like there were some gunmen hiding behind another vehicle. It just jumped, jumped out at him, just gunned him down. That's right, and there were lots of reports at first. Oh, the gunmen were speaking Russian. They're Russians. Oh. Uh, there were lots of uh, you know speculation about what had really happened, but... 
you know, with the assistance of the RCMP, the Royal Thai Police narrowed it down fairly quickly and have now charged these two Canadians, Jean Larkamp, who has been living in trail for the last four years, and uh, a friend of his uh, named Matt Dupree, who had recently moved to Sylvan Lake, Alberta. Both of them are ex-military, and Dupree wow. has been working, you know, essentially as a private security contractor, a private soldier, if you will, uh, in combat zones in Iraq, uh, and in Syria. Wow, that's incredible. And they're now, they're now accused of carrying out this hit in Thailand. That's right. Correct? They're facing wow. charges in Thailand. There's an Interpol red notice for them, meaning there's like an international warrant for their arrest. I was able to learn that Dupree did get arrested within the last few days in Alberta. They're still looking for Larkamp. He is on the run. And Gee, I was up well. at his place in trail over the weekend talking to neighbors, talking to anyone who might have had contact with him. And he's been living quite an isolated life on this hilltop, looking down over trail and the tech factory there. And it was quite, quite a place, an incredibly gorgeous view, uh, but quite a rundown compound that he's got for himself on this mountaintop. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I really encourage the listeners to check out your story on this. You went to Trail BC to on the trail of uh, these suspects in this this gang hit in Thailand and spoke to some of the neighbors. And it's an it's an amazing story, which I encourage the listeners to check out. I'll tweet it out for you, uh, for the listeners. Um, so you went you went to Trail. Uh, you went to this, and you talked to some of the neighbors. So. What did some of the neighbors think when they found out that this guy was wanted for, like, this guy was an alleged international hitman? Well, I think people are fairly shocked. Um, I would say they're not necessarily afraid because they don't think it's the kind of thing that has any impact locally, except that they're now part of the intrigue in this big international story. Uh, he was quite standoffish, I would say, it would be the way they would describe him, friendly enough. He was breeding these Belgian shepherds, Malinois dogs, beautiful dogs, um, and he would be walking them down this hill that had like six hairpin turns before the next neighbor coming down, and he would walk past their house, chat with people, never mentioned he was in the military, never mentioned if he had other work, uh, and then he appeared to disappear early last fall. And he had a house sitter there who was struggling because uh, it gets there's a lot of snow up there. And once the road is snowed in, it's really hard to get out. So uh, one neighbor, Ron Joseph, had uh, assisted the house sitter who was caring for the dogs uh, by plowing her road for her. But he was under the impression she had a lot of issues up there with the house and had sort of been stuck in this situation where she had to care for these dogs, but, you know, wow. not in the best of environments, right? Wow. So. People were a bit vague on where he was, why he had left. Uh, Ron was told by the house sitter that uh, Jean Larkamp had left for an extended vacation in Southeast Asia. Uh, so people were very surprised when suddenly it emerges that this quiet guy that not many people had close encounters with was alleged to be an international hitman. Yeah, that's that's something you don't hear every day in the neighborhood, that the guy who's walking his dog around the neighborhood is accused of something like this. Well, that's incredible. Speaking to Kim Boland, the award-winning crime writer at the Vancouver Sun. So um, this guy, Kim, Jim, uh, Gene Larkamp, formerly of Trail, he's they haven't caught him, right? He's missing. He's on, he's on the loose. Their cops are looking for him. Is that right? 
That's right. They're yeah. looking for him. And we have to remember that there is the Thai investigation where charges have already been laid. There's a parallel Canadian investigation being carried out by the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit. And they're looking at uh, what crimes may have been committed in Canada. You know, this is likely where the conspiracy to kill Jimmy Sandu was hatched. So they have to get evidence and, you know, try to get to the point where charges can be laid at this end as well. So while these guys are already facing charges in Thailand and there will likely be an extradition request, they could also face charges here in Canada. Right, and you mentioned that the other the other man accused here, Matthew Dupree, who is from Alberta, right? He didn't grow up in Alberta. He was actually from Newfoundland, a small town, was in the military, based out of uh, Petawawa for a number of years, had been living in B.C., but in April of 2020 moved to Sylvan Lake, Alberta, and that's where he, he was located near there. Oh, and so he's been he's been arrested. He's been arrested. Okay, oh, wow, that's amazing. So last question for you, Kim. So what does this say about... You know, we see the gang conflict here in, in the Lower Mainland. Uh, we see the, the targeted killings. We've seen many of them. This has international links, clearly. Your thoughts? Yeah, yes, it does. I, I wrote a story about that before I went up to trail. I think it came out Friday, Saturday, about the international links to the local gang conflict. Because, you know, please keep calling it the Lower Mainland gang conflict, when in reality... We have seen related murders in other provinces, and we've seen them happen internationally. So it is definitely bigger in scope. Uh, you know, police do what they can with the resources they have, but certainly we need to look at this in a more comprehensive way. You know, what, where are local gangs operating internationally? What connections do they have? And what can be done to, to stop this kind of violence, not to mention the drugs that they're bringing into the country? Yeah, incredible work as usual, Kim. Thank you for coming on today to talk about this case. Anytime. Thanks very much for having me. Let's talk about the bail hearings now for the leaders of the three-week-long truck blockade of Ottawa, including Pat King, who live-streamed his arrest four days ago. He's been in custody ever since. I've got global news reporter Amar Khan standing by. But first, have a listen to this report from David Aiken. Even as she was being arrested, Freedom Convoy organizer Tamara Leach called on her supporters to hold the line. We'll see you soon, Tamara. Hold the line. That and other calls to action Leach made during her three weeks at the center of the occupation of Ottawa were at the heart of a judge's decision Tuesday to keep Leach behind bars and deny her bail request until her trial begins on the single charge of counseling to commit the offense of mischief. It is a charge which carries the potential of 10 years or more in prison. There is no doubt here, the judge told Leach, on conviction, you are certainly facing a potentially lengthy term of imprisonment. Convoy co-organizer Pat King faces similar charges. He's been in jail since he was arrested Friday. Please step out of the vehicle, sir. Prosecutors want to deny bail to King as well. A judge will decide on that on Friday. Okay, Pat King faces four charges here related to his involvement in the blockade in Ottawa, including mischief, counseling to commit the offense of mischief, counseling to commit the offense of disobey a court order, and counseling to commit the offense of obstructing police. He was in court yesterday. Let's check in with Global News reporter now, Amar Khan, who's covering this story. Amar, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Thanks for doing this. Okay, so let's talk about Pat King in court 
yesterday. What was that like? What were the highlights for you of that proceeding? I think the highlights of it were just kind of, you know, how bombastic it was. Um, some of the things said by the lawyer for, for Pat King, um, you know, talking about Pat King's own language in which he has used towards Muslims, Chinese uh, people, and indigenous peoples, he described as racist. Um, he described it as disgusting. Um, so, you know, it was really interesting to hear this defense, but, you know, we heard a surety put up $50,000 to get Pat, Pat King out uh, which is, you know, half the value of her home. And she's only known him for about four weeks. So some really kind of bombastic um, things that we learned of uh, about not just Pat King, uh, but just about how they're trying to get him out and the defense that they're making to get him out. Right. Now, a surety means someone who would put up the bail money on behalf of Pat King and then encourage him to maintain the conditions of bail while he's out now pat king is from alberta and the person who put up the surety is also from alberta care how do you pronounce the last name here care is it comics yeah carrie comics carrie comics okay so carrie comics said she would basically mortgage her house and put up fifty thousand dollars and she's only what she's only known pat king for did you say four weeks yeah and interestingly Uh, enough she she's followed Pat King on social media for a bit longer than that. She's only known him for four weeks. And the way that they met was because she's a convoy of a so-called freedom convoy participant. So she actually met King during, um, you know, the occupation of of Ottawa, which is, you know, completely astonishing and something that we learned of as the, the crown kind of pressed her about their origin. So she's only known him about four weeks. She feels like she can get him under control. Um, mentioned a lot of things about controlling his internet use, uh, would be watching him like a hawk um, over his shoulder. You know, she has a dog, and if he, he decided to do anything, he should be really scared of the dog that she has, and that she's a really light sleeper. So there was a lot of comments made by, you know, Miss Comics, who was also involved, um, you know, from what the Crown showed us, in a token on, a, you know, a cryptocurrency token uh, called the Freedom uh, Token, that Pat King was also involved in. So there are some deep, you know, not maybe not long ties, but there are some deep ties over the course of four weeks. And, uh, you know, Miss Miss Comics believes that she can keep uh, Pat King on the straight and narrow and make sure that he follows his bail conditions. Okay, so we've already seen Tamara Leach, one of the key organizers of the blockade. She has been denied bail, and Pat King now fighting to to get out and and bail. He faces even more charges than Tamara Leach. What is the Crown's position here? Are they they arguing that, like typically I've, I've heard from people who say, you know, if someone is charged with mischief, wouldn't they normally get bail pretty easily? And you'd think probably they would, but the Crown here is arguing that what Pat King could likely reoffend? He's a risk to reoffend. Yeah, um, they think he's a significant, um, you know, risk uh, to reoffend here. So the Crown essentially argued that Pat King has really shown no remorse, even when he and they referenced certain videos about him talking about, you know, the the horns blaring in Ottawa. And, um, you know, the way that it was referenced to by the Crown was saying he was laughing sadistically. You know, those are very, um, 
important choices of uh, of wording that the, the crown decided to use and just you know explicit, explicitly hammered home as often as they could that they don't think pat king is the kind of person to just take his sentence to to, to get his bail conditions and go away the, the man has 300,000 plus followers on facebook and that he will reoffend he will violate he may even start to kind of you know aggravate more people uh, and and use and see this as a slight so the, yeah. the crown really hammered home that you know people will will not be safe if pat king is released and you're absolutely right on the fact that um, you know on a common mischief charge even the crown noticed noted this that you know people would just be allowed to go but this is right. an extraordinary circumstance um you know pat king is not just a nobody he is one of the you know the lead organizers and you know and, and one of the most prominent voices of the freedom convoy right speaking to amar khan global news reporter he's been covering the bail hearing for pat king one of the key organizers of the truck blockade in ottawa that went on for three weeks and you know, talking about some of the language that was thrown around in court yesterday, it was pretty extraordinary. Like the crown, the crown attorney in the courtroom saying that he quote Pat King was at war with the city of Ottawa. Noise was a form of torture that was implemented on the citizens of Ottawa by Mr. King. So really, really laying it on thick for the judge, asking the judge to keep him locked up, keep him behind bars. What happens next now, Amar? What's the what's the next step here? Yeah, um, and as you mentioned, one of the things that you know, Moise Karimji, who is also uh, the Crown Prosecutor in Tamara Leach's case, he just said, you know, it would put the confidence of the administration of justice into disrepute, saying that this would be a huge stain if we let Pat King out on bail. Um, so we have a, a bail hearing uh, on Friday for Pat King at one right. p.m. Eastern. Um, you know, I expect, you know, within the hour or so, the, the, the justice of peace has heard everything. He's heard both sides go back and forth, bring in their evidence, talk to the surety, you know, the, have the surety cross-examined. So everything is on the table now. So I expect within an hour of the hearing, we'll probably know the decision. Um, we're in unprecedented circumstances, Mike. So it, it's unclear which way, you know, it could go. Uh, but as you mentioned, you know, it's it's not necessarily common for somebody to be held on mischief. But, yeah. you know, Moise Krimji, who is the crime prosecutor, successfully argued that Tamara Leach, who doesn't have a criminal record and has never had a criminal record, should be denied bail. And he was successful there. So these are unique times. And we'll wait to see what happens on Friday. OK, we're watching it closely. Amar, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much, Mike.